Welcome to TA1, everything you want to know about adventure racing and then some. I'm your host, legendary Randy Erickson, here on a uh, sort of a C2C introduction. So I'm in the middle of packing. It's late Sunday night. I leave Tuesday morning. Plenty of time. Actually, I'm just about done. And when you're hearing this, it'll be Friday, so we'll be day two. Um, if uh, you might have seen the big news, we're on Google Play, and by the time you hear this, it should be on Spotify also. So now you can download it three times and have three times the pleasure. So uh, I got shamed into to uh, adding those. Actually, um, they used to be real difficult. I looked into it a couple of times. Cost money. It was a pain in the butt. But uh, my host, Potomatic, who have uh, worked everything out, got everything going good. And uh, but they made it real, real simple. Like click a button, simple. So um, we'll see. Apparently, we're the only uh, adventure race podcast, at least on Google Play. So tell your friends, search adventure racing, and you can find it. Anyway, um, it's enough of that. Let's get this done because, uh, quite honestly, I'm ready to go to bed. So anyway, uh, go fast, take chances, and uh, congratulations, all you C2Cers that are listening to this after the race. Mm, bye. Brandy, how are you? Ah, good. How are you this wonderful morning, evening? <laughs> uh, yeah, pretty good. bit warm, good. actually. Actually, it's almost tipping 35 degrees here, which I imagine is a bit different where you're sitting at the moment, but other than that. Well, uh, pretty interesting because I think it's 35 degrees here too. <laughs> yeah, okay. But <laughs> fair enough. Night, right? <laughs> I, actually, a little bit warmer. We're having yeah. some nice weather, so I'm being happy. So I would take some yeah, 35 stuff. Celsius. <laughs> so. Yeah, well, I'd gladly trade, hey? We'll work out how to do that. Yeah, come. Yeah, hey, we could just trade houses for like six months out of the year. That, that, that's that'd work. Yeah, that, yeah, let's go for it. I bet you yeah. you wouldn't mind living in the middle of the woods. Well, uh, yeah, I'll take that too. And if you've ever seen me race, I'm about one of the heaviest sweaters you'd ever see. So I'd, it's probably a bad idea that I set myself up in a tropical climate because. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I do suffer through the summer here, but the trade-off is when we have our winters, you can sort of still get out in shorts and a t-shirt to run, so yeah, yeah. we just got to sort of hang out for mid-year, and that's basically when most of the racing's happening here in Australia anyway, so it doesn't yeah. really start ramping up until end of March, April, around then, and sort of all done and dusted by sort of October anyway, so yeah, Which, definitely yeah. a winter sport yeah. in Australia. Well, it's kind of funny, because I was just looking at that and realizing that that's our season here. <laughs> you know, it really starts getting going about the, yeah, the end of uh, end of March and and uh, by October we're done. So it's a little yeah, strange. And it makes it a little bit tricky because uh, if you want to pick an expedition race, it's, mm -hmm. they all do seem to sort of overlap uh, quite a bit. So even coming from here in Australia, like uh, XPD this year, I think is around July time, which is. You know, when all the sort of the big races in Europe and North America are running as well. So yeah. it's, uh, 
not you know not that most teams would have the capacity to run more than say maybe one or two expedition races a year, but yeah, they sort of all do tend to cluster around that that mid-year period. So anyway, yeah. is what it is. For a small yeah. sport with not very many races, yeah, it's kind of funny how often they're like, oh, well, I'd like to do these two, but they're like two weeks apart. So. Yeah, exactly right. Now, I think, um, yeah, there are some big clashes. I think by my count, there's not even 20 expedition races going on around the world this year, and there's some direct clashes. Like I think the race in Norway is around about maybe a week away from the race in Croatia, and both look yeah. spectacular to do, right? And if you're yeah. a European, you know, you'd be – and you had the capacity to do two races, or certainly that'd be high on my bucket list. But you, yeah, you, the re- reality is you could only pick one this year. So yeah. anyway, nice problems well, to have, right? Yeah, I guess that's going to happen here because I think Oregon and and the Canadian race are like three weeks apart. So I mean, for uh, some yeah, people they, that would go. be doable. Yeah, to come if you're going to travel, go big or go home, right? Yeah, that's true. Well, actually, yeah, you could make it a massive road trip from overseas. You'd hope you pull up all right. I know a week or two after an expedition race, doing another one. So the last thing on my mind, <laughs> sort of a bit done from adventure racing for a while. But, yeah, anyway. Yeah, well, there's yeah. some of those nutcases out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The sport does seem to attract them too. Yeah. yeah. So um, here's here's my first question. Who are you? Uh, well, um, I guess uh, we've done names. Oh, I'm Liam St. Pierre. I, I guess for the purposes of this uh, for this chat, I, uh, I'm an Australian adventure race, but also direct uh, a race called the Rogue Raid, which is a 24-hour road game format adventure race. Um, this will be its 11th year running. So it's a, a little bit of a different race in that has all the adventure racing disciplines, um, trekking, kayaking, mountain biking, and navigation, but it's also in row game format. So uh, every race, every leg is essentially its own game. Yeah, the, the race is... So every team's guaranteed to get uh, 24 hours of racing. The courses are designed to not be swept. So every team... Possible across those stages. Um, yeah, it's a uh, bit of a different format. Um, like some of the stages are still relatively linear. You know, if it's a, a river paddle, it's, they've sort of still got to get from point A to point B. Um, but you know, there'll be certain legs where it might be eight k's to hike from uh, five miles to get from checkpoint uh, from between transition areas, or the top teams might you know get pushed for. 30, 40 k's of um, hiking to try and sweep the different checkpoints. So, yeah, it's uh, race has been in its 11th year now. It's a member of the Adventure One series. I'm not sure are you familiar with uh, the A1 series over in the US at the moment, or a little bit. But you're gonna you're gonna let us know. Yeah, I, <laughs> I guess mean, it's, it's, um, so... it's like my here's here's what I know. Like a few years ago, there wasn't one, and now you're in three countries. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So um, I guess it's uh, Adventure One's essentially it's a national series which is uh, uh, pulls together um, four or five races, certainly that many here in Australia. Um, it just sort of ties them together into sort of a, a um, with a point system uh, mm-hmm. where sort of teams are competing for a national ranking. 
Uh, it's entering its fourth year now. Um, this is a be the third year that my race has been a member of the series and yeah as you know it's uh, sort of expanded out to have a series in uh, New Zealand and Australia as well so um, yeah a, a little bit of background I sort of uh, kicked off adventure racing as a I did, I did my first sprint race in about 2006 and sort of fell in love with the sport and got into it a big way and started organising row gains at first and then sort of these adventure race uh, row gains as well, sort of as a volunteer not-for-profit thing. Mm-hmm. And the race just grew year after year for about eight years and sort of got silly to still um, be running these events, which are so popular, but doing it as a not-for-profit thing. And time was getting a bit more pressure, so I sort of started a, a company and now run it through the uh, sort of a, a for-profit race model, which is working out well. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, we hit our 11th year this year. Had a big year last year in 2019. Instead of the traditional 24-hour race format, we ran a 100-hour run game format. So it was a um, s- sort of same same deal. It's about 10 stages um, uh, spread over four days, four hours of uh, yeah non-stop racing, which is a, a pretty big event. Sort of came together yeah. really well. Yeah, so. And I think we will probably look to hold another 100-hour row gain uh, format uh, race in 2021, so next year. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, there's a lot to go on there, but uh, yeah. we'll get there eventually. But So do you find that that works good, like doing like a big race, like your 100-hour race every other year? Or do you get people saying, well, I want to do it every year? Yeah, I mean, it was a bit of an experiment the first time. I just wanted to make sure I could pull it off and keep my own sanity as well. For <laughs> yeah. me, it's uh, yeah, also it's got to fit in with the local race calendar as well. Um, mm-hmm. We have XPD, which runs on an 18-month schedule. Okay. Um, and, and we've got God's Own which, across the pond, which traditionally has been every year. They've had an 18-month break between these two editions. I'm not sure if they're going to go to that roster so it kind of has to fit in with that schedule as well um and yeah i sort of just try to get a feel for what's happening in terms of the race calendar and where it's going to fit in one of the nice things about um the adventure one series is that it has brought all the different race directors together here in australia and so that we can sort of balance our calendars a little bit better so we're not sort of we're avoiding clashes and, and the calendar works um, quite well. It's yeah. actually going to be a pretty bumper year for racing here in Australia. We've got um, 10 or 11 races that are 24 hours or longer this year, which so uh, we're certainly going to be sport for choice in terms of racing this year. So yeah, it'll definitely be. Uh, it's definitely an interesting year to see how it's uh, it's all going to come together in terms of numbers, competitive numbers at events as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, certainly if you're an Australian adventure racer, you're definitely sport for choice for races and race locations. Most of them are all situated across the east coast which um, uh, of Australia, so anywhere sort of um, from the Sunshine Coast in Queensland right through to the bottom of Victoria. Uh, but they, that's where the main population base is and that's where the main sort of um, uh, ad- adventure race participant base seems to be anyway. So, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, are you guys like having a huge resurgence in, in adventure racing? Because I'm thinking like five years ago when, you know, 
started doing this thing, it was like there were not a lot of Australian racers and or races or that we knew that we yeah. knew at least. Yeah, it's, um, I'd say so. I, like I said, I've been involved in the sport for 14 years. In terms of races to attend, there's a real ebb and flow. Like it seems to be that every man and dog is pulling a race together, and then that, that sort of um, then there'll be other years when they sort of a few race companies fold up and and, and go away. And maybe we are at a, a bit of a peak at the moment in terms of races options. In terms of people racing, my feel is that it's pretty consistent. Like there'll be up years and down years, but yeah. it's all sort of in a margin. What you'd probably notice is uh, what's happening internationally in terms of Australian teams to go over and compete in sort of World Series races. Yeah. We had, um, and I mean, that that doesn't seem to happen as much. I do think um, the with the Adventure One uh, Series, I'm hoping we see a little bit more of that. What I've noticed perhaps is that uh, because the premier category for Adventure One is mixed teams of four, there certainly seems to be a growth in the number of mixed teams of four who are consistently competing now, mm. whereas before a lot of the races might be teams of two or they might not acknowledge the um, mixed category as the premier category, so you'd get a lot of pairs, men's pairs and stuff like that. But we've got teams like, um, say, Thought Sports, um, captained by Rob Preston, who you probably, I think it might have been uh, yeah. chatted to before, yeah. um, Thunderbolt, um, a couple of teams like that that are starting to be uh, keen. Alpine Avengers is another one, top team, who uh, have the capacity to race together at two or three, you know, 24 or 48-hour races in Australia um, and take that strength and go and race uh, internationally as well, so yeah, I think um, that um, yeah, I think we probably are starting to see maybe a few more Australian teams racing internationally. You got to remember too, it's a, a big step to yeah. to go to Europe or to to North America. You'll see a lot of um, obviously Australian teams racing locally at XPD and. God's Own is almost effectively a local race for us yeah. as well. It's only a three-hour plane ride over. It's, um, so, yeah, you'll certainly see a lot more of uh, that happening. Um, it'd be great to have a, um, you know, strong Australian teams that are consistently... Oops, I lost you. I got you there. Yeah. Yep. You're back. Yep. Yep. Sorry. Just lost no, you. No, that's a just that's just the nature of this. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, we're just yeah, just saying you you're starting to get some consistent tough teams that hopefully will be able to travel a little bit. So yeah, yeah. So and I think having a strong local series where those teams can race as a team of four, um, that's just got to help in the long run, and also help with uh, up and coming teams as well. I think there's we're still it's interesting I had a look at some of the uh, demographic data for the participants here in Australia so this was back in uh, 2017 we had a look at the um, so back in 2007 the average age for a competitor at GeoQuest which was our premier 48 hour race back then was mm -hmm. 38 years 9 months or something 
And then 10 years later in 2017, the average age of competitors was just uh, under 48. So in 10 years' <laughs> time, the average age had risen nine and a half years, which kind of tells you a little bit of uh, what was happening there. So, um, but at the moment, we do have a few more youth teams coming through as well. It's certainly something I try to encourage um, with our with my events as well. So, the hundred hour last year, we had a youth sponsored event. Um, you know, it's interesting. It's uh, there's so many logistical hurdles to get into an adventure race in terms of gear and cost. You know, I don't need to tell your audience how hard it is. So. It's, I don't feel like it's ever going to be a youth participant sport, at least certainly not at the level of you know expedition racing or possibly even um, 24 and 48-hour races. Um, if, and every time we've tried to hold, say, a youth-specific event, we, I never really see like teams of teenagers turning up, so you know, a team of 17-year-old, 18-year-olds. What we get is a team with mum and dad and their 10- or 12-year-olds racing, so I think perhaps that's where the sort of the youth side of the racing might have to get driven from. But yeah, it's um, it'd be great to see sort of more youth coming up through the sport. Maybe stuff like Eco Challenge, um, when that finally goes to air, we'll see uh, a bit of a change in the demographics then as well. It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. Yeah, it will be. Yeah, it sounds like you're getting. I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to. You know, especially in Australia and New Zealand, that yeah, we're we're orienteering or gaining with their parents, and just kept going. So, yes. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's, absolutely. That that yeah. might and, be the only model <laughs> that works. Yeah, no, it, and it's a good point. I think if anyone has the right idea, it is the orienteers because um, they, you know, they've got their junior world orienteering championships, and they've got like a developmental pathway in place for that. In saying that, again, orienteering is such an accessible sport. You can build an orienteering map of, you know, your school playground and give a yeah. kid a compass and a piece of paper and as long as they've got a pair of shoes, away they can go. So, yeah, and um, and I think, yeah, there probably is, uh, it is definitely a, an obvious pathway into um, adventure racing. So, yeah. So, you got five races this year. What... How many? Uh, yeah. How many do you want to have in the series? I think five is a good number. So the way the series set is set up is uh, it's your best three results across the year. Um, I think in so we have got five races. I have to apologise. We're doing renovations at our house at the moment, so there's a little no bit problem. of hammering going on in the background. Yeah. Um, I'm, yeah, I'm so, used to that. Yeah, that's right. I could hear a bird tweeting around in the background at your place too. Randy, so. Yep. Um, yeah, so five races in the series. The first one um, kicks off. It's a new race called Explore Gippsland, which is actually directed by uh, Rob Preston. Mm-hmm. Um, my race is the second race in the series in early May. We have a race called Wildside in June. Um, another race, which is a 12-hour race called the Mojo Raid, which is up here in Queensland, early September, and wraps up with a ex-marathon in uh, late September, which has sort of been a stalwart of the series. And I think five is about the right number. We'll have, um, you know, less than half a dozen people who actually manage to make it to all five races through the year. You can have up to seven athletes across your scoring roster, so it does allow you to sort of swap teams in and out. Um, 
I actually not only direct a race, but I actually participate in the series with my team, Rogue Adventure, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and personally, I'll make it, well, obviously, I'll be the race I'm directing, but also be able to race at three of the other races as well. And it, I think if you're going to try to look at do, um, do an expedition race through the year, um, get into three races which are 24, 36, 48 hours or so long is uh, yeah. probably the right balance as well. Throw in a few little sprint races and then all of a sudden you've got a, a pretty full calendar. Um, but it means we can travel interstate once or twice through a year which you know, to fly down to a race. I, I think that the, the numbers are about right uh, for the good. series. Yeah. And is it the same races every year or do you bring in others, you know, do races take a year off? How does that work for you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hasn't, I think with the fourth year now, there has been a different lineup of races. It kind of uh, uh, depends on what races are, are available and running in any given year. Um, a couple of the races um, have moved over to the new Oceania series, which is sort of, Affiliated with the Adventure Racing World Series, so we've actually got, in, in essence, almost two um, sort of national-based series racing here in Australia um, this year, and they sort of they'll run sort of independent of each other. It'll be interesting to see how that sort of all comes together yeah. as well. Um, so, while I said we've got, like I said, there's probably about ten races which are 24 hours or longer here in Australia, and about half of them come in. Uh, under the A1 uh, banner this year. There's a few races which are just sort of running independently and um, and uh, are sort of separate of either series. But in, ultimately, it's a relatively small sort of community in Australia and everyone sort of um, talks with each other. And we've got a nice balance and spread across the calendar um, of events. The first event was actually supposed to be... Um, Gosh, the weekend just gone, but uh, unfortunately I had to get cancelled with the um, the bushfires that we've been experiencing yeah. here in Australia. I'm not sure if it sort of made the news over there, but we've had a horrific uh, yeah. dry season and some pretty bad bushfires, which is going to uh, – I think there might be even a few events this year that uh, a few race directors sort of nervously watching what's happened on that front and potentially planning uh, plan B and plan C for where their <laughs> courses are going to run at the moment. So. Yeah. Yeah, and saying that we've had a little bit of relief recently, so it's sort of taken the edge off. Yeah. So, well, and it's kind of a sidebar. I was actually curious about that because, yeah, it's it's actually been pretty big news over here. But then, I I don't want to say funny, but it was kind of funny. I saw a post that there was rain, and literally, that's the last we've heard of the bushfires. And I'm like, I don't think they're out. Yeah, Are, uh, no. Is it a little better, or is it yeah, still as bad um, as it's always been? I mean, yeah, there's, there's still a concern. And in terms of just as a purely as a race director, um, for example, um, just because the fires, even if they're out uh, and they're no longer a direct threat, it doesn't mean that they're no longer an issue towards your event. Obviously, yeah. the parks people are, are quite on edge about how it's going to play together and. Um, even with my 100-hour event last year, which was in May 2019, um, the start area had a big bushfires rip through in December, January. So even five months later, 
we weren't allowed to access the, certain areas of the park because um, there's big concern about trees falling over and also um, like root mounds still smouldering and burning. Mm-hmm. What it's hard with with the Rogaine format. I guess with any adventure race, the the parks people want to say, so where are your competitors going to go? Which tracks are they going to be on? And the reality is like, yeah. well, they could go almost anywhere, right? Like I can't, yeah, I can't say they're going to be here at this point in time. So um, yeah, even even after you know six months on, there, there's still potential issues um, based around competitor safety for an area that's been burnt out. Um, yeah. And saying for that, for our 2019 event, we still got enough land to be able to host the event. And it's quite interesting, actually, running through a burnt-out area because obviously it just opens up the undercarriage significantly. Yeah. Actually, it's um, it's almost otherworldly. Competitors all come back with black soot all over their face and legs and everything. And it actually makes for quite unique racing. But in terms of uh, race director, um, it does make it tricky. I, you know, I'm a... As a race director, I'm a little bit concerned. We have had a pretty bad drought here. Mm-hmm. With my 100-hour event, we had three three paddle legs. One was a downriver whitewater paddle, one was on a lake, and one was on the ocean. And all three basically became weather-affected. The downriver paddle, they ended up having a height 30 of the first 50 kilometres because there's literally not enough water in the river because mm-hmm. of the drought. We then had a blue-green algae bloom, which, again, is sort of... Um, uh, impacted by the dryness at the moment in the lake and that got cancelled and had to move it to a different lake and then with the ocean paddle we had high winds and the, even the safety boat couldn't get out onto the water so we had to sort of yeah, keep it into the river for that paddle as well so it's sort of one of those things you just got to to roll with but yeah certainly the dry how dry and how hot it's been th- this season it, yeah, it's sort of it's something you do have to take into consideration when setting a course yeah so and we're going to we're going to get off the fire quickly but so it, you know yeah. obviously it's like an historically bad fire but in the i mean in the history how bad is it compared i mean is this the worst it's ever been at the 10th worst any uh yeah you know it's um i think what's been really bad about this set is just uh how widespread it is so it's not like it's just sort of one area it really has spanned um, you know, almost three states worth. So we're talking, you know, thousands of kilometres of um, uh, uh, bushland, sort of yeah. all up and down. I don't know where it sits historically. Like, with certain, and how do you measure it? Is it like yeah. amount of burnout? Is it amount loss of life? It's it's definitely sort of been up there. I wouldn't be able to put a number on it, yeah. but yeah, it's certainly it's been sort of dominating news here, and rightfully so uh, for the summer. Yeah. yeah. It it's it was a really bad one. It's a really bad one. Yes, that's yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Describe. Um back to adventure racing. So yes. what is the goal with A one um you know, long term and, and how do you measure success of a series? Yeah, good question. So I guess the the goal is to Obviously, and I think this measure of success is um, increased participation uh, in the sport. Um, it's it's mostly about pulling, um, uh, giving structure to the sport. So I imagine the same is probably in the US. It, the way it's adventure racing is always run in Australia is it's basically independent race directors mm-hmm. um, running their own races, sort of uh, doing their own thing. 
uh, I think that's actually a, a fine model. It sort of gives the race directors the independence to um, design their own uh, great courses with their own uh, peculiarities, which you sign up for. Um, but it's sort of day one wants Adventure One gives those races a bit of structure to work around. Um, it sort of gives a bit of bragging rights around um, a, a national ranking. But more than that, I'm hoping what it does is it sort of grows into a bit of a pathway for people to get into a sport. So it's sort of your first port of call if you want to say, hey, I've heard about this sport of adventure racing because I saw Eco Challenge on Amazon Prime or I've got a mate who did this crazy thing on the weekend. I want to do it. Where do I go to find out about it? I think Adventure One is a, a great point for that. Because all the races between 24 and 48 Oops. You see the mate, now, now you're back. <laughs> yeah, I'll see if I can connect you again. Hello, we got you? Yep, you're here. We're good. Yep, got you then. Okay. Yeah, so as I was saying, um, Adventure One sort of sits in that region of races, which aren't your sprint races and then not your expedition races. Yeah. I sort of see it as a stepping stone between the two. I know adventure racing sort of started out initially as expedition races like those were the first adventure races but the reality is anyone coming into the sport now are going to start as um, doing sprint races you know your three and six hour races yeah and the thought of doing an expedition race for some people will just you know be impossible and never get there um, but for some people they need that sort of stepping stone in between and I think adventure one covers that uh, rather nicely to, you know, it gives an avenue for people who've tried out a few sprint races and want to try something a little bit harder. It's, it gives it a structure to uh, participate uh, in that. In yeah. saying that, um, we're hopefully, well, we will be rolling out this year what we're calling the Adventure 2 series, which is um, basically a collection of our sprint-based uh, races in each state. Uh, around Australia, and I know they'll be rolling out in South Africa as well. So, again, it'll be sort of a, a state-based championships of all your sort of three, six, and maybe even a couple of 12-hour races in there as well, with the idea that finally you have a pathway to go from something that's uh, these small, short races into something that's a medium-length race to eventually maybe working your way up into an expedition-length race. <clears throat> Because uh, yeah. there are some people out. who, yeah, exactly, exactly right. Because some people, you know, quite happily jump into an expedition length race. Yeah. You know, off the bat, they'll be crazy enough. I know I certainly did. And I started out doing, you know, a sprint race here or there first, and then I did my first 24 hour, and then my first 48 hour, and first, you know, expedition race. And I think that's probably a more healthy pathway into the sport, <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so, but yeah. what does healthy got to do with adventure racing? <laughs> Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's uh, it's yeah. certainly a, a sport of a sport of extremes. If the, um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So with five races, are does each race have a um, like its separate field to it? Did you know? Yeah. What I mean? So. Uh, so we have got five different race directors directing the five different races, and yeah. And when I sort of came into the series, I was quite adamant that um, each race director still is given as much independence to do what 
they want with their race within um, sort of limits. Like we certainly want some elements around quality control. You know, there's certain yeah. things that just in terms of when you get information out that are just always going to make a good race. But they absolutely certainly have a good feel. Um, so obviously with the Rogue Raid, which I organise at the end of May, that's the Rogaine format race. I actually have... Um, Collaborators who are organising the Mojo Raid, which is the fourth race in the series, so it'd also be a just a 12-hour Rogaine format race in the series, um, and they have you know, quite a distinct sort of strategy and feel to it. Um, X Marathon, which um, uh, is run by Adventure Junkies, is the last race in the series. It tends to be um, sort of generally fewer legs, but more epic sort of backcountry legs, really big hills, um, that's the sort of feel to it. A race like uh, Wildside, which I've competed in, the third race in the series, it's uh, the, 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 certainly two I've raced have generally been more coastal and the legs are sort of shorter and punchier. Um, I won't be making it down to Rob Preston's race, uh, Explore Gibson, which is the first race in the series. I'll be very keen to see what he'll uh, pull together. I imagine he's going to... Um, have yeah quite an epic event uh, come together uh, for yeah. that race. So yeah, every race director sort of brings their own um, feel to it. Um, yeah, most of them have. I think yeah, we've all all, all of them have kayaks provided now. Um, so the, that's sort of something that's been a bit more standardised in the series. There used to be a, a few races on the Australian calendar where you could bring your own kayak. Um, with all the pros and cons of that, you know, um, yeah. it's it, paddling uh, your own boat sometimes can be a bit nicer, and but then logistically, that's it, it, it sort of um, makes it a lot harder to get to a race. So there's a, been a few things like that which have been standardised across the races, but um, yeah, they, they still definitely have their own um, own feel about each race. Uh, yeah, it's just a shame that, you know, I'd love to be doing one every weekend if possible, but time and money sort of don't always yeah. permit that. But, yeah. So what, um, what didn't you know about running a series or helping organize a race series that you know now? Oh, that's a good question. So like I said, um, I started organizing these as a, a sort of a volunteer thing through the Queensland Rogaine Association. So the first eight years of running races were sort of done as a not-for-profit, which I almost consider my my apprenticeship in yeah. um, terms of organizing races. What I think if someone on the outside looking in, when a race goes well, um, it, it just actually looks, you think, oh, that's actually easy. All you've got to go do is hang some checkpoints in the bush and then go pick them up afterwards, yeah. which I can tell you is probably like the shortest, easiest job of, of anything yep. about race directing. Um, the hardest in part, and that I'd say to most people, is um, just curbing your expectations on permits and what's uh, allowable. Um, and it's taken a good decade to learn what I can get up uh, in terms of permits for access in certain areas and, and not others. A good example is the 24-hour racing I'm running this year. We'd actually The area spans four regional councils, um, our maritime safety in the water, national parks and two private landowners. So that's eight different governing bodies who half the time don't have a concept of what a Rogaine or what an adventure race is. So half the battle is trying to explain what you want to actually do and then get the permits over the line 
it's it can be like a six or seven month process. Um, so, I mean, maybe it's obvious to say that, but in terms of if anyone's coming in, um, like that's sort of what to run a race, that's sort of the thing you need to be aware of. The second thing then I feel is sort of attention to detail. Again, it's one of those things where when it goes well, you don't notice it, but um, things like, uh, say, having electronic timing systems run properly on the day or your online tracking or good quality maps being produced, they're all those uh, little things that, um, yeah, you sort of don't notice when they, they go well, but it sort of take a lot of work. And probably the final thing is um, just comes down to communication. I can't, sometimes I feel like uh, race directors at Adventure Racing are almost want to be too secretive about their courses and what's involved, whereas I kind of believe that the more information you can give to racers, the more it's appreciated and the more likely you're going to have an uptake in your participation. I have no problems about announcing a headquarters as soon as it's booked. And I don't care if you know if it's somewhere within an hour or two's drive, and people are going to go out and ride those trails or paddle those waterways beforehand. Ultimately, they still need to turn up on race day and find that little orange and white flag on the particular creek junction off the um, side somewhere, and then yeah. my race determine whether it's going to be worth the points to do that. And I don't think it's going to hurt your participation uh, rates to get as much of that information out as early as possible. So, yeah, I guess that's some of the insights that I'd have um, coming from, you know, I do a lot of racing as well and it's kind of hard not to, to do a race and then think, oh, but what would I do if this was my course or how would I do things a little differently? <laughs> so I sort of try to take those yeah. on board as well. So, yeah, when, coming, yeah. when it comes time to organising my races. Um, that opens up an interesting can of worms. Maps, how soon, out, how soon do you yes. give maps out? Yeah, so um, you know, the, anyone who's doing my race this year might be uh, a bit dismayed to learn that they're only going to have about two to two and a half hours beforehand. So we run a 24-hour race where maybe it might go from midday to midday. This year it's going to go from 10 a.m. to 10 a.m. when that's a lot to do around tide times and uh, getting teams off the water at a reasonable hour. So it only gives them about two and a half hours with maps. Um, which I think is probably the right amount of time for a linear um, adventure race. But with the regain format adventure race, it's going to be tight for time because there's just so many different strategic decisions to be made. The courses aren't sweepable, um, so you've got to decide which legs you're going to focus on and what are your strengths, how many checkpoints are you going to go get on this particular leg, what's your cutoff for when do you dump checkpoints, um, our courses are generally very heavily weighted with points on the last leg or two as well to encourage teams to be out there as long. So quite often there's some strategic decisions like, is it really worth getting that 20 or 30 pointer on this first paddle where I could be ripping myself off later in the race? So, yeah, to be honest, I'd hate to try and participate in my race <laughs> um, because just the, it would do my head in the, the strategic decisions around it. If I yeah. see something that's pretty obvious in my course, then I'll just I'll change it a little bit to the point where it's um, no longer an obvious um, decision or route choice. Um, with the exception of say, oh, this is an amazing spot, this is a stunning view, or this is a really cool spot. I want to get teams here. I'll throw a hundred pointer in here. Um, so. Yeah, for, for us, for our event, it's um, the 
the morning of. I know some places give out maps the night before, and typically though, um, that's if it's like a, a really early start, like a six, seven, eight a.m. start. Um, and that's also dangerous because you can end up staying up to midnight, you know, drawing, um, cutting up maps and, and getting ready for the race as well. So it's a bit of a balance. This year yeah. we're going to um, try for the first time giving out a logistics matrix before all the race. So basically a breakdown of what the legs are, what order they are, and roughly how long they are. So mm-hmm. competitors can have packed and packed and ready um, so when they do race day, it's just going to be a matter of um, uh, just being able to focus purely on the maps as well. So hopefully they'll take some of the pressure off. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a good mix to have a, you know, let them know the general area, you know, give them a logistics planner. And it, yeah, then they only need two hours with a map. Um, That's right. And like I said, with that information a week out, they can probably reverse engineer where the course is generally going to go, but they're still going to turn up to their race. They've still got to to find um, where all the the flags are. So, yeah, I'm not not too too worried about teams speculating. And that speculation is half the fun anyway as a racer. So It is. I know um, probably about the time this comes up, I'll be on my way to Florida for C to C. And they've literally had the route on the website for a year. <laughs> but yeah. you still got to get there. Yeah. You still got to find 72 checkpoints. Yeah, that's right. But it is kind of fun to, yeah. you know, and, and it's literally a screenshot of Google Earth with a line on it. So it's like, yeah, yeah. How, how much time you want to yeah. spend trying to enlarge that? So. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. There'll be people who obsess over it, and others who, you know, don't care, and 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 they're both as likely as each other to get lost on the day anyway. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. It uh, as as uh, the race car drivers say, fast racers go fast, right? Yeah, that's right. As long as they're going in the right direction. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. You got to pick that. So um, I want to go back a little bit. How? How did you get in, roped into being in this weird sport? Even though yours was kind um, of a traditional path, what's your background? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, growing up as a kid, I was uh, a basketball. Like, uh, basically, lived and breathed basketball growing up, and then sort of hit university and didn't play as much anymore. And always sort of, you know, enjoyed camping and. stuff. It, but had never been a runner or a cyclist or a pup or anything like that. And um, just heard through a friend who someone had told me a thing. It's like a triathlon, but you don't swim, you paddle. And I thought, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. And um, we had a little local race, which is actually going to be in our Adventure 2 series um, up here on the sunny coast, which I had a crack at and sort of instantly fell in love with it and sort of did more and more racing and then thought I'd... Um, uh, and although I did spend a lot of time um, then doing row games, I just love the um, row games in that it's easy. You turn up a pair of shoes, set of gaiters with your compass, and away you go. But the, yeah. the strategy of them and started organising through those events as um, well. And did my first so first sprint race 2006, sort of first 24 in 2007, first 48 and 2008. Um, we actually won a free entry into a race called the Abu Dhabi Challenge. I don't know if you remember yeah. that at all. 
Um, yeah, so Sleep Monsters had a promotion to support a team that never raced internationally before from a whole bunch of different countries, I think um, England, Australia, South Africa. Uh, and we were fortunate enough to win an entry for that, so got to head over in 2010 and do um, that, which is sort of my first exposure to big, big, uh, proper racing, um, which is a stage race, and then backed up from that. Um, the World Champs came to Australia in 2011 with XPD um, in Tasmania, which is my first expedition race, which turned out to have been an eight-and-a-half-day odyssey to, for us <laughs> to get through, but made it to the finish line. Um, and then that was 2011. Then Godzone kicked off in 2012, um, and I fell in love with that race. So it's uh, just a spectacular, um, uh, spectacular areas for racing, uh, really, really well run, um, tight uh, race organisation. Um, so I'd sort of re- raced the first three God Zones and went back and did um, their Fjordlands race recently. Um, got to race over in the US once at a race called Expedition Alaska um, okay. back in 2016. Um, yeah, again, another specky race. So in terms of my own racing, that's sort of my history in it now. We've been... We've got a team who also raced in the Adventure One series, and we're not sort of quite at that top tier of the um, the top two, one or two teams, but we sort of sort of nip, nip at their heels, and generally are good for often getting a sort of rounding out the podium or something that um, to just through consistency finishing sort of second place in the series in the last uh, couple of years. So we're sort of um, have, keen to have another crack at uh, the series against you as well so yeah, yeah. it's sort of my my own personal race history in a nutshell what um yeah. how did that first world in tasmania how did that change you being out there for eight and a half days if well, you... uh, super super nervous going into it i mean i've done maybe like four or five 48 hour races but never sort of dealt with the sleep deprivation again um it was interesting i kind of learned from that that uh so that once you get through those first uh, two or three days for me personally i actually find you're sort of in a groove of it then and it, it sort of gets easy i mean it's amazing i still think expedition races is the pinnacle of the sport and it's yeah. my favorite format of racing if I couldn't do anything all year, but I could just do one expedition race. Then that that'd almost be my my option. Um, you just sort of by the time you're out there for you know four or five days, you, you almost forget about what that there is an outside world, and you're so focused on um, just getting through that course. Um, yeah, I sort of love it. It's interesting. I've never actually done a race that. So I think. I've done a whole bunch of races that are 24 to 48 hours long. So I've sort of raced all the way up to the 40-hour mark where you don't need sleep. Yeah. And then the next shortest race I would have done would be would have been the XPD World Champs at Shoalhaven, um, which I think you were at. And we were out there yeah. for 120 hours, I think. So I've never actually raced anywhere between that 40-hour mark and that 120-hour mark. <laughs> um, so everything, because God's own, they're massive courses, and especially yeah. as an Aussie. Uh, there you sort of you you're going to be out for a long time. I think um, the Fjordlands race we you know we finished 
14th, 16th place and were still out there for eight days. Like they're, they're just big, big courses. So I've never actually done a race where I'm out there for say 72 hours where you sort of only getting maybe one night's sleep or maybe a bit of a nap on the second night. I've never yeah. sort of done any racing around that mark. Um, it'd be, I'd actually be keen to give something like that a go because I think um, for a, yeah, obviously you, you're going to have to move a little bit quicker than when you're out for five, six, seven, eight days sort of thing as well. So yeah, yeah something still haven't ticked off the bucket list yet. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean that's interesting. That's probably yeah that seventy to eighty hour race probably has more sleep strategy than than any other distance. Yeah, I I agree. I think. Uh, if my feeling is if you um, if you're out there for 72 to yeah moving on to 96 hours you, you can't really afford to sleep the first night of a race yeah um, which then makes that second night really really hard and I've done a mix of both where you know even though we're racing for seven days we still push through the first night and it just gets really really messy on that second night um, whereas the times when we've stopped and only had say and about an hour's sleep, on that first night, I think things go better for the rest of your race. And it's kind of hard to do because that first night you're still pumped up and um, get on the first night. Uh, um, so but I think it really does pay off dividends when you're going along with that. Yeah. I think the whole sleep side of things is really fascinating. We sort of, um, my wife is actually a, uh, she's a sleep researcher. So she studies, um, sleeping practices and childcare centres um, around Australia. Um, but her supervisor, Simon Smith, who's a University of Queensland academic, is obviously a sleep expert. And um, he's heard about the, the racing that I do and obviously fascinated by it. And we've actually done a little bit of um, uh, sort of research work with him for a couple of the races. I think it was um, XPD in Shoalhaven and that Expedition Alaska race we've put actographs which are you know, little um, sort of wrist-borne units which sort of measure activity and sleep periods onto a bunch of the teams we had one on our team i think we had them on yoga suckers and um who was it um uh rob's was racing with the u.s team um maybe they were tech new back then tech or did they have an uh, medical venture yeah. medical kits yeah yeah so we had these actographs on teams on all these teams and another australian team i think at the time and um measuring basically their sleep their activity we did questionnaires before and post pre and post race questionnaires about um perceived exertion i think and uh injuries and sort of prep stuff as well um so yeah, that's a, that's actually still ongoing work. Actually, I have to check in and see um, if they've published all that data since then. But it's a fascinating field of study, right? Like if you think about, uh, it's a perfect model for studying, um, you know, decision making and exertion um, in sleep deprived states, right? They do a lot of studies on things like uh, shift workers, so nurses who work through the night, or long distance truck drivers and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, they certainly find adventure races to be quite an insane model where, you know, you're going 40, hour, 40 hours without sleep and then having to make critical decisions around navigation. And, um, but also in a team environment where you're, they call it yoking, where your sleep pattern is not necessarily your own sleep pattern, but it's linked to the sleep patterns of three other people around you as well. Yeah, quite fascinating stuff, really. Do you, I don't, you, <laughs> You don't have your doctorate in sleep, but do you find yeah. 
that when you're with a team that that the yoking happens or you know in yeah. an eight day race. No, I, I find almost <laughs> the opposite. It's almost okay. like there's always some. But occasionally it is. I think, look, generally it gets to the point at 2 a.m. everyone's knackered and is pretty keen to lie down. But I have had incidents, incidences where there's just one person who's basically dead on their feet and it's it might only be like 9 p.m. or and it might just be the worst spot to stop and sleep. You know, you're in the middle of somewhere super wet or you just got to get through to the next transition area. Um, and the only thing you can do is sort of um, look after that person, you know, make sure that they not don't have the maps in their hands for starters and just do to get them on and get them through it. And I have been that person once or twice as well. And it's just the worst. Like physically, you know, your legs might be feeling fine, but you just can't move because all you want to do is just lie down and close your eyes. Yeah. So yeah. fun times. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think I've told the story before, but years and years and years and years and years and ago when I was actually a, a fit athlete, we were doing an overnight bike ride, in a, literally going down the middle of the freeway, you know, out here in Western South Dakota. And I just thought, I could just close my eyes and fall asleep right now. And I, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to. I yeah. wanted to see what would happen. And then yeah. I'm like, yeah, 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 it's yeah. probably going to hurt. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah, you feel absolutely. good. Yeah, you're moving along fine, and you're just like, I just, I could close my eyes and sleep. <laughs> yeah, it's one of the, it's uh it's like paddling. It's just uh, I don't. Uh oh. I've got you. Yeah, sorry, dropped out for a second. Yeah. Yeah, we had a similar thing. That first XPD I did in Shoalhaven. XPD used to have a um what they call a mid camp, where it's mm -hmm. a compulsory six hour stop. Now the ideal thing is you hit your six-hour stop at like 10 p.m. at night and then you sleep through the, the evening. You know, the worst thing you want to do is to get there at like 10 a.m. and just lose six hours of daylight and not be able to sleep properly and be in the heat. Um, yeah. So we were about to hit mid-camp. So what we'd done, we'd gone through, we'd been out on the course for two nights um, and we'd pushed through the third night hoping to get to mid-camp on the evening of the fourth night at, at that 10 p.m. sort of period. So it was kind of bad, but we had pushed, like, you normally you'd sleep on the third night, right, of a race. Yeah. But um, we pushed through it completely, hoping to get there and have a proper sleep the next night. But the leg just blew out. So we were riding along, and we didn't get into mid-camp until about, I think it was 4 a.m. I've never been that sleep-deprived. I worked out... we been going for almost just under 48 hours. It's 47 hours without sleep by the time we hit there. And same thing, we've been up in the hills and in the bush and on the dirt tracks on these bikes. And when we hit um, the Bitumen Road, I was so fascinated by how smooth this road was that all I could do was look at my front wheel on the Bitumen and and just not even look up, look around. God only knows how I made it into <laughs> mid-camp safely. Because all I was literally doing was watching how fascinating watching this wheel turn over on a smooth bitumen. So yeah, it's, it's um, yeah, again one of yeah. those sort of extreme extreme points yeah. that you sort of end up in an adventure race, but you're sort of sort of taking your stride at the time. Yeah, well, probably everybody listening is like, oh yeah, I know exactly what he's 
going yeah. through. <laughs> so, yeah, 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 all been there. Yep. All right. Just a couple more things. Um, and 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 this is something that fascinates me, and maybe you have some numbers on it, but almost everybody I talk to does their first adventure race and just loves it, and you know yep. that's it. And and yep. obviously it self picks. You know, I don't get to talk to anybody that went to their first adventure race and hated it and never did another one, but. Do you have a a sense of how many first timers you get that that come back to your races? Oh, that's a a good question. I thought someone has looked at this data. It's over in the U.S. and I think there is a little bit of problem of sort of a one done or a two and done. I've yeah. never looked at my own data. At, at every race, I'll say, throw up your hands if this is your first adventure race before. And we do quite often get a lot of um, new hands coming up. Um, more so, though, for our sprint races. So along with that 24, um, we've got a 12 and also a six-hour row game format race, and you're more likely to see new faces for that and for our shorter stuff as well. Um, yeah, it's a fascinating question because ultimately the sport is... I, I, my feeling is it's always going to be a niche sport. Like, yeah. it's never going to be... It's never going to even be something like a triathlon where you can have fixed cameras and televise the whole event. And you know what's going to, how it's all going to play out. All the action sort of happens at 2 a.m. on the back of some, you know, saddle in the middle of the hills somewhere. And it's, it's, it's never going to be super accessible. So, yeah, I, I don't have a real good feel for how many people are new to the sport that are going to progress all the way through. Um, in the end, we don't need everyone to to be that those people, all right? We just need enough of them to keep the sport in a healthy place. And I suspect yeah. that there is probably enough of that uh, coming through at the moment that uh, yeah, things are ticking along nicely, certainly here in Australia. Well, what's your feel for it, uh, Randy? With, I, with... I, yeah, I, I I saw that number two. That's you know, yeah. how many it is, and and. Yeah, I don't know. Is it if it's a quarter or a third? Seems seems like the right number, but yeah. I mean, what do you do? You can't force them to come back. No, that's right. So all you can do is uh, offer quality experiences, and that's why yeah. every race is so critical to get right because yeah, it's it's interesting. It's like you'll get people who turn up and race the same trail running race every year, and it's the same course every time, yeah. and. I, I'm actually quite jealous of those race directors because how easy you've got the same permit process, the same logistics in terms of your management. It, it's super yeah. easy. Whereas every adventure race course, you're dealing with a new permitting body, new maps, new everything. Um, there's a lot, a lot of work goes into them. Um, yep. And yeah, I, hats off to anyone that runs races for a long term. I, I think the longevity I normally see is about five or six years for a race series, and then. They start to fold up because so much has to go into um, to every course. But then yeah. it's critical, right, to get every course right because you know you do have these new people coming through that you want to have a good, them to have a good experience. Yeah, uh, and you want them to come back. One of the nice things with the Rogaine format race, though, is it's it's almost impossible to not finish the race. You know, as long as you go out, get one checkpoint, and come you're back to headquarters, yeah, you're a finisher, yeah. and you, you get you get a score. Um, and and if you're lucky too, like you get to race alongside the top teams multiple times throughout yeah. the race. You know, with our 100-hour event, 
all the teams finished within an hour of each other. It was just the best five on the finish line. Um, mm. Sure, the top teams might have covered half as much distance again as the, some of the mid-pack to back-of-the-pack teams. But, um, but yeah, it's certainly a, a sort of more social format of racing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, uh, it's in a way, it's a lot easier f- for us to give a, a sort of a positive experience for competitors with the road game format. I, I think looking at a linear race, you know, you can set a course and your fastest team will do it in less than half the time of your slowest team. So you can have a 24-hour race. Uh, the winning team finishes in 12 hours. There'll be still teams who don't finish what the standard course is. And then um, you sort of, what do you do then? Do you tail the course for the slower teams or do you just throw, throw in a bonus legs? It's a real balance to make sure that everyone turning up to your race is getting a quality experience and a proper journey. I'm not saying it's impossible, but yeah, yeah it's just one of those things that we've got to juggle a little bit more uh, if you were to organise a linear race. And yeah. I think good race directors get that get that element of right. So the top teams are pushed, but uh, the mid-pack teams get get a good experience and want to turn turn up and race again uh, next year. Yeah, well, I know um, Jeff. They do a good job at C to C because it's 72 hours in the you know, winning first team finished at like sixty six hours, and it, you know everybody else finished in that next six or eight hours, whatever it was. So yeah, so that's, that's amazing. That's so what do they have? Uh, do they have like uh, uh, what bonus legs to or just nope. like uh, just short coursing or um, no? Because it's um, it's linear. You know, starts on one side of Florida, yeah. goes to the other. Seventy two checkpoints. Yeah. None yep. of them are mandatory. Ah, okay, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you just, you know, there's teams that are skipping the first first three checkpoints because it's a, you know, it's an extra 10k run. Yeah, yeah, know. yeah. No, see, that's so clever. That's definitely a smart, smart way to yeah, do it, right? It yeah. works good. So, um, yeah, all right, yeah. I just got one more personal question for you. Yeah, far away. Um, so. It's it's the bucket list question, and and for you it can't be God's own because you get to do that all the time. Yeah. <laughs> so what's what what's the race you're uh, you're like? Yep, that's the one I got to do someday. Oh God, my bucket list is just uh, too big on the at the moment. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, so and it's it's rotated through. I, I'd really love to look at that Croatia race, to be yeah. honest, if I could get over there. Um, Japan was another one that I was having a really close look at maybe racing this year. I think it was a demonstration race in the World mm-hmm. Series last year, but um, unfortunately they had, they had some weather event through there, maybe some, avalanches yeah, or something what, like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, so we got Cannes and that didn't happen. Um, I'd love to get over um, and race again in the U.S. with for exhibition. I know I'm just basically naming all the cool races yeah. around the world. <laughs> I had a friends who uh, just uh, committed to racing Patagonian expedition race uh-huh. for a long, long time. That was on my top of my bucket yeah. list. Um, and then after spending eight days in Fjordlands, I had a bit of a reality check on just how hard that race would be. <laughs> so if I'm going to give one answer, I'm going to say. Uh, the Croatian expedition okay. race uh, that'll be up there at the moment, but yeah, not happening this year for me, unfortunately. So I yeah. see it sells out really quick as well. Like the entries went within uh, a couple of days or something, wasn't it? So yeah, really yeah. quick it is. Yeah, I'm. I yeah. mean, I'm a little biased, but I think um, uh, Oregon is going to become that race. 
and and I think part of that is because they're going to always be a limited field, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, yeah. It's, so that's put on by Jason from Yoga Slackers, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, I, I'd uh, trust his uh, um, course setting abilities. For a long time, I had um, that was it. Untamed New England was yes. on the bucket list, but obviously that's sort of not going now. Yeah, so I think if year. I ever <laughs> get to. All oh, right. Okay. So it's not done enough. You actually, uh, back in the day, sent. I think it was you. Did you produce the videos for that? Yeah. Yeah. At all? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I so I've got a first... couple of your videos from the previous editions. So, it's um. Yeah, that's yeah. definitely there. I I I know nothing, but you know, it was three years last time for Grant. Next year is three years. Yeah, it could happen. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <laughs> so, but. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, ultimately right. though, it's whatever I can get. I talk my teammates into going to. I think will be the, the next big one. So yeah, they're, they're all good. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, mostly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually. Anyway. Yeah. 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 Um, so all right, cool. Anything we haven't cool. covered? Uh, look, yeah. No, I think uh, that pretty much covers. Just a big uh, shout out for anyone who's interested in looking at Adventure One for the website, which is. Um, AdventureOneSeries.com. Um, so it's got the list of five races there. Definitely a good starting point if you're looking to get into sort of that longer format racing here in Australia. And I should it'd probably be silly of me not to plug my own um, race site, um, which is RaidAdventures.com. Um, yeah, I think that pretty much covers it all. It's certainly interesting times here in Australia. We've got uh, a lot of cool races going on this year. Uh, everyone's sport for choice. So, yeah, I think it's uh, good times for adventure racing. Sweet, it is. All right, well, cool. Well, this was uh, one of those that was a long time coming, but was worth it. Yeah, yeah, we've been back and forth for a while, so it's good to finally have a chat. And, yeah, yep. maybe we'll touch it base again in the future, out. hey? Yeah, well. absolutely got there. Perfect. All right. Well, right. thanks, and um, have a good series. Yeah, will do. Thanks, Randy. Chat soon. All right. Bye.
This road will never end.